Well, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together. Gather together to do what? Well, I think that what we've got in Zephaniah 2 is similar to what you've got in the prophecy of Joel, that God has pronounced judgment and condemnation against Judah. And what he's saying here is, look, we can change it. Even now at 11.59 at the last minute, gather together. Let's pray. Let's have a special meeting before God so that this day of the Lord's anger verse 2, uh, will pass away from us before it actually comes. Now that's the, the scenario you got all through the, the book of Joel, where the idea is, look, judgment has been pronounced, we have been condemned, but we can change that situation if we gather together. Now it seems that they didn't gather together. Um, and you notice that this is at the time, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, in the days of Josiah. Well, good King Josiah apparently. Well, he may have been a good king, but you again see how externally a nation can be righteous. The people of God can appear righteous, as they did at the time of Josiah. He made all these reforms, etc. And yet, in reality, the people are very, very far from him, uh, from the Lord. And you know that, again, is cause for self-examination, particularly at the time of the breaking of bread, that it can appear that we are, as things were at the time of Josiah, when actually the wrath of God can really be kindled by various things. Now, my point is that God's stated purpose can really change. But we have to really be repentant. Now, don't forget that in terms of what Paul talks about in Romans, we have each been condemned. And yet we can change the verdict. Now, this is what gives an intensity to human life, to a human relationship with God, that we can change it. And we can change that verdict of condemnation by, by grace. But the problem is, I think, at the time of Josiah, going back to chapter 1, <coughs> uh, verse 11, the people of Jerusalem were settled <coughs> on their lees like wine. Uh, they said in their heart, Yahweh will not do good, neither will he do evil. So they had got this sort of postmodernist attitude that that is today, that somehow we're comfortably numb, that somehow, yeah, God may say these things, but somehow it doesn't touch me. Somehow my heart is not touched uh, by the, the eternal moment of the issues that are before us, either eternal life or eternal death. Now you might expect that the appeal to repentance is to quit idols. And I don't doubt that uh, there, were, there was idolatry, as you can actually perceive from other parts of Zephaniah's prophecy. But the first of it in verse 3, seek the Lord. And what, what does that mean, to seek the Lord? Well, he goes on, seek meekness. Now, that's lovely, that God, in that sort of parallelism, is paralleled with humility. He so loves humility. And to seek him is to seek humility. That is what he seeks more than anything else. <clears throat> and I think we, we get that message pretty clearly throughout the prophets, that he is seeking for humility above all. And what he condemns people for above all is their pride. I mean, you see that in verse 10. This shall they have for their pride. Uh, the, the, the judgment against Moab and Ammon could have been for all, all manner of reasons, but the main thing, their pride. And you see this so many times in the prophets. 
so if humility <clears throat> is, I think, one of the, the, the great characteristics that God is looking for, it is also the characteristic he is seeking to develop. So it is not surprising in our lives that he humbles us. And insofar as we fight against that, we fight against loss of reputation, maybe loss of wealth, loss of relationships, etc., we are, I think, fighting against the way that he is going, that he wants us to be humble, because to seek him is to seek humility. And he goes on to say, verse 3, it may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So although God had said this is going to happen, like he said about Nineveh, you will be destroyed, yet there is this possibility of change. When he says, incidentally, you may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger, it could be that he's saying that, look, the anger of the Lord is going to come, but somehow you will be preserved from it if you seek humility. And that, I think, is true also of our last days, that there is to be this huge time of awful uh, trouble to come upon the earth around the time of the, the Lord's return. But Isaiah 26, verse 20, Come, my people, enter into your chambers let me hide you until the indignation be overpassed. And it's the same idea. It's rather like how the people of Israel in Egypt initially suffered some of the plagues, but the, the final plagues they were preserved from. There was light in their dwellings and darkness in Egypt. And I think that that is what may well happen in the last days. But it's, it's all very uh, open. You see, if we are the last generation... We have to be prepared for the Lord's coming, to actually be that final generation that will not taste of death until we actually meet him, and then we will be that only generation who actually will never die. And because of that, we are going to be prepared for that. In one of the Lord's letters in Revelation, he says that if you keep the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation that is to come upon all the earth. So maybe some of us will have to go through that tribulation to prepare us to be ready for him. But of course the point is, you can, if you like, avoid that if you get there now. If you respond to his word now. So this idea of what is potentially possible runs through so much of the prophets, and, and it's certainly here uh, in verse 7. He talks about the, uh, the coastlands which will be for the remnant of the house of Judah, and at the end of verse 7, I will turn away their captivity. Now that could be, that could be read as meaning that I have set you up to go into captivity, but if you repent, you shall not need to go. But in any case, he seems to be predicting that the coastal strip occupied by the Philistines and the Kerathites, verse 5, the inhabitants of the sea coast of Israel, uh, that their land is to be given over to the people of Israel, to the remnant of Judah. Now, I don't see any historical evidence that that came true, but God's word does come true. It's just that if the generation that's intended to fulfill it don't fulfill it, then it will come true in another way at a later time. And isn't it strange that that area is the Gaza Strip? That's what it is. It's the Gaza Strip. And you can see how it's all going to have a strange relevance, that that hotbed of opposition to God's people is going to be turned over finally when the Lord Jesus comes back to the house of Judah. And the fact that that is right now 
the hotbed of opposition to the Jewish people cannot be insignificant. This is a sure sign that the Lord surely is going to come soon. Verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab, Ammon, etc. God says this a number of times. Look, I'm listening. I have heard. And we are hurt by words, terribly hurt by words, far more than we we might admit. We we ruminate on what people have said, etc. I'd like to quote some words of David, Psalm 38, 13, 14. I as a deaf man heard not, and I was as a dumb man that opens not his mouth. I was as a man that heareth not. Why? Because God heard. And it's very difficult to go through life without getting beat up by the words of other people. Now, of course, you can harden yourself and make yourself insensitive and think, yeah, I pay no attention to what you say, mate. I'm good. And and that's elegance. And that's not what's being asked of us, to lose sensitivity. But on the other hand, how can you be sensitive and yet not be uh, beat up by other people's words? Well, I think this is the answer, that God has heard. He hears every word. And therefore, as David says, I am as a deaf man, because God is hearing it. Verse 8, these people magnify themselves against their border. Well, that is exactly the case in the Gaza Strip at at this moment. It's all got a very strange relevance to uh, to our days. And then you you come on to... uh, verse 10, where he says they have magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. God's saying all your attitudes to my people are very, I'm very sensitive to it. But at the time God is saying this prophecy, giving this prophecy, his people were so sinful, uh, was so displeasing to him. But it's really like a parent who is still terribly sensitive to the actions of others against their child, even when that child has rebelled against them and has hurt them terribly. Now, by baptism into Christ, we are in Christ and we are counted as him. And therefore, God is hugely sensitive to us. If he was this sensitive to his people in the Old Testament, even when they were so rebellious against him and later when they murdered his dear son, How much more is he sensitive to us, we who at least try to follow him? Now, it seems to me that from verse 11, that it was possible that if Judah had repented then, then God would have destroyed all the idols of the the land, uh, the land promised to Abraham, and men would come from all over the earth to worship God in Jerusalem. And verse 12, the Ethiopians will be slain Um, and it would seem from verse 13 he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation I would read that as saying that this is what the Ethiopians are going to do they're going to destroy Assyria and Nineveh before they also are slain by the sword but that didn't happen so I see all this as a potential scenario that Judah could have repented Ethiopia would have destroyed Nineveh and Assyria and then in turn been destroyed, and then the kingdom of God could in some sense have been established on earth, but it didn't happen. And this is how tragic it is to be God, that he sets up so many potentials which don't come true. I mean, even when he says, verse 13, Nineveh should be a desolation, don't forget, he said that through Jonah, with no conditions. Nineveh repented, and it didn't happen. 
Now, that is exactly our situation. That we have been condemned, quite rightly, but before the court of divine justice, we can be counted righteous in Christ and the condemnation is turned away. And if only we can feel that, the intensity of, of relief and of joy is going to be very great. We will not sing hymns and songs any longer just because that's the words on the page and that's what we all got to sing. Um, but with real feeling that I have been redeemed by his grace. Now he talks about the downfall of these cities for their sinfulness. Uh, Nineveh uh, particularly. Flocks will come and lie down in her, etc. 15. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me, making themselves God, the I am that I am. Um, so it's a, a condemnation of a city. But this condemnation of a Gentile city is phrased and termed with the very language that is used about the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, in chapter 1, you've got... a, a condemnation of Jerusalem particularly verse 12 of chapter 1 I will search Jerusalem with candles and then going on chapter 3 verse 1 uh, talk, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem as the filthy and polluted oppressing city who did not uh, trust in the Lord verse 2 of chapter 3 she drew not near to her God her God this is talking about Jerusalem and not Nineveh uh, verse 4, her prophets and priests have polluted the law. Um, but, verse 5, Yahweh is in the midst of her. He will not do iniquity, etc. So you've, you've got this prophecy about the destruction of this evil city of Nineveh wedged in between prophecies of destruction against the evil city of Jerusalem. The point is that Jerusalem was to have the same judgment as the Gentile world. This becomes very relevant to us in the great breaking of bread section in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 we are exhorted to examine ourselves lest we be condemned with the world in other words we can share their condemnation and I think that when the Lord comes and there is the day of judgment of the, the believers at roughly the same time as the judgment of this world is going on I think really the final judgment and condemnation of the wicked is to send them back into the world. You know, this is the, the life that you loved. This is the world that you loved. Well, just go back. You're obviously not with me, so go back. And they won't want to, but they will have to. And they have not come out of Babylon, so they will share in Babylon's condemnation. And, you know, he raises this, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 11, as... A, a means to, to assist us in our self-examination at the day of uh, the uh, breaking of bread. But really we have a foretaste here of the day of judgment. And the point is, if you condemn yourself now, you will not be condemned with the world then. And so this is the finest paradox of all, that on one hand we rejoice in the certainty of salvation and the, uh, the lifting of condemnation, or I should say maybe more correctly, not so much the lifting of condemnation, but our being counted as someone else. And that someone else is the Lord Jesus, who of course is not condemned. And so let's do that. We must examine ourselves to the point now that we feel quite rightly that I should be condemned. And yet, uh, and therefore we will not be condemned with the world in the last day, 
And yet if we feel that, we, we will also feel that sense of relief that we have been redeemed, that we have been counted righteous in the Lord Jesus.